Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, your host on this morning's programme, and I'm delighted to have Craig Richardson alongside me on the show today. Craig is the head teacher at Helsby Hillside Primary School, a primary school which admits four to 11-year-olds based in Frodsham, Cheshire. Uh, Craig, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Morning, no problem. Good to, good to talk to you. It's a real pleasure having you um, alongside me, uh, Craig. Um, whole reason we're here is to uh, discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we would dive in onto that subject. But considering mm-hmm. the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, it is, I think, I'm sure you'll agree, one of the greatest challenges of our time for leaders within communities, within institutions, organisations and businesses. But how has it been for yourselves as a school managing this? Because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. It has been. It has been. I would say very difficult is the way I would describe it because um, I think initially in, in sort of March, the uncertainty of, uh, of of how long things were going to last, how long the lockdown was going to go on. And uh, so first of all, managing it through, through lockdown and through the school being open for key workers and for vulnerable children, um, it was amazing really how it was still a full-time job. And even though we had staffing on a part-time basis and uh, – the number of children varied sort of between two or three and 15 or 20 on a daily basis. It was still um, incredibly important to have all systems in place to be following the guidance that came from the government and the local authority on a sort of daily basis. Um, so I think that's probably been a, um, whilst you totally understand the the importance of uh, working towards guidelines for, to manage the COVID um, crisis, uh, it is frustrating as a leader, I've uh, been a school leader and a head teacher for quite a long time. And normally that focuses on improving the learning and the teaching, mm. on making education better, on the curriculum. We've done lots and lots of work over the last couple of years on improving our curriculum and making it bespoke and exciting um, and sort of working towards, you know, sort of the new Ofsted framework. Whereas really my, most of my time in the last six months has been on management of a, of a crisis. So... It's been on making sure we've got systems in place to be able to wash our hands regularly and increased hygiene, putting one-way systems in place, rearranging furniture, sorting out rotors and timetables and things like that. Um, so it's been managing a crisis, and, and I haven't been able to, although we're just getting back to it now, uh, to making sure that the learning and the teaching and the children are making progress. So that's been a frustration. But the one common thing I would say that came that, that comes through all of that is, is sort of the people and the communication, and that's been key. And um, even though it's been a difficult time in managing uh, and all those systems I talked about there, the one key thing has been communicating that mm. so that all the staff are very clear about what they've got to do, um, but also that parents know exactly what's happening in school and how we're managing it and keeping their children safe. So weekly uh, newsletters, regular emails, um, posters up on the, the school gates, um, telephone calls, you know, just making sure everybody is really aware of what's going on and that communication's uh, really effective. 
And I can imagine that even though that crisis management experience is sort of taking you away from that priority of raising learning standards, I suppose mm-hmm. there might be one or two things that you have learned from that experience, both about yourself, but also the people around you in terms of the effort that you've put in to make all this possible. Absolutely. And I think it, you know, I think it's shown that everybody, I mean, to start with, and I mean, and still to a certain extent, I had a large number of um you know, staff who were very anxious about coming back to school or coming into school, um, catching the virus and, and, and becoming very unwell. And, and they maybe had vulnerable family members as well. So there's a lot of anxiety. Um, but this, generally the staff have been absolutely um, amazing and really particularly since September when we've come back um, sort of with the whole school back, uh, staff have just sort of thrown themselves into it and uh, and got back very quickly actually to teaching and learning and the children have come back sort of unfazed by it all really that was a surprise I expected we'd have some um, some more anxiety or worry and, and stress from, from them but the, you know nearly the vast majority I'd say all of them have come back really excited uh, really happy and uh, and just keen to get back to learning and being in school with their friends so it's it's been uh, you know a fantastic start back back to school for us. Um, obviously, we've got to manage if and when there's a case of COVID and we have to shut a bubble down or we have to send children home. Uh, and we've obviously got the procedures and the systems in place ready for when that happens. Um, but at the moment, everything's going going really smoothly and really well. It's really encouraging to hear that the children have come back and that's been positive because I'm sure there were a great many worries about just how many of them might have fallen behind in their learning throughout the year, the lockdown period especially, and there might be some real fallout issues there. So that's certainly a very positive. Um, moving on to sort of leadership just that little bit more broadly, um, quite often people view a leader's role as being to essentially inspire and provide motivation and direction. Um, however, when you are a leader and there's an immense amount of pressure on you to provide that during a crisis, it can be difficult when obviously there's a lot of um, sort of changing information, changing guidelines, changing circumstances out there. And albeit you can keep the communication channels open, obviously maximise um, your efforts to just keep people reassured during a time like this. When you are at the top of the tree and you do need just a little bit of direction, inspiration and reassurance for yourself, there isn't anybody really above you to refer to is there as such so when you do need that yourself where is it that you tend to look to for it well i'm very lucky we've got a a really good group of local schools in frodgeman villages partnership who i've worked with for a number of years now Uh, and in the most difficult uh, times of the lockdown and when decisions about whether to reopen or not were were coming along and uh parts of the country were opening schools in june and, and others were saying no we're not it's not safe um, you know that that network of local uh, head teachers was was really supportive because we made decisions together. So we decided to delay the opening of schools for two weeks. And rather than that being a decision I took on my own um, or with my my lo- my governors, um, I felt more secure and um, safe, I suppose, in making that decision alongside. Um, my colleague had teachers that we'd done it as, a, as an area, if you like. Um, I've also had you know, support from my chair of governors. Um, and during the, the lockdown, I met with my governing body um, a number of times uh, through uh, remotely, through, uh, online. And um, just really um, 
updated them on what we were doing to keep the children safe and to, to manage the reopening of school and also to answer any questions that they had about any worries or uh, and safety. So I think that there has been the support there um, and also we've had uh, obviously guidance coming in daily from the local authority and from the from the government, from the DfE. And I think it, it's sort of important to be aware of all of that guidance and information so that when staff have got a question or parents have got a question of you, if, I'm not saying I know everything by no means, but I think having an awareness of all of that information and then staff have got some confidence in your leadership if you if you're able to answer questions and say well we're going to do this we're going to do that and you can then sort of um, act quickly and confidently and staff have got that sort of trust in you and uh, certainty that, that that we're doing the right thing um, I think that that makes a big difference for the school community if they feel they've got that trust in the in their leader if you like. Mm, absolutely trust at a time like this is incredibly important and inspiring confidence and in fact having gone through such an experience where you've needed to retain the uh, the confidence of uh, those around you um just how has it been from a mental health perspective sort of managing that not just from your own point of view but also that of everybody you're working with because i can imagine that the worry and all the stress um, that's brought about by a time like this can get on top of people at times yeah, that 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 was that was difficult, and I say I think that anxiety was at its highest in in the early part of the lockdown, and um, you know we were ordering PPE and face masks and face shields to you know, and then actually as we've come back to in, I know schools opened up more widely. We we're not actually using those materials unless we have to provide intimate care or, or first aid. But, but um, I think teachers at least knew we'd got precautions in place if we needed it. But the worry and the stress and the sort of mental health side is something we've taken very seriously and um, something we've talked about all the time. So we had regular um, sort of staff meetings and catch-ups, again, uh, remotely uh, during lockdown, and people were encouraged to um, talk to a colleague or talk to me if they needed any support or any help. Uh, I think it was probably worst or, or, or most difficult with any staff who had a particularly vulnerable relative or somebody who was quite uh, poorly, and they were having to be careful to isolate because they didn't want to to pass anything on to their vulnerable family member. And I think it was about being supportive of that, so uh, moving rotors around and juggling things so that if somebody did need to be away from school, um, they could be. And I think other staff were very supportive of that and recognised that as well. Um, That's encouraging to hear that they were certainly understanding of the uh, the situation. Um, unfortunately, Craig, um, our time on the programme is beginning to uh, draw to a close this morning. But just before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the programme, I would like to talk about the future because over the next 12 months, we do know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new way of living, new way of working. But what is it that the school is really hoping to achieve in the next year? And where do you see the school being in 12 months time? Well, let's say the children have come back um, really well and, and ready to learn. So we've we've got very high high expectations of our children, and, and that that's something we've had for a long time. We uh, our school motto is learn, laugh, and play, 
So we do like to have a laugh and we do like to play, but learning comes first. And, uh, you know, we're a high-achieving school. The children do uh, normally achieve really, really well. Um, and our early signs are that we think the children um, in year six, certainly the first class that will sit the, um, the SATS test next year, um, have made a good start. We've got some money, um, a little bit of money from the government to help us with our catch-up program. So we'll be putting in place sort of one-to-one lessons and small group lessons to help those children that need that extra catch-up because it is variable as to what they did in lockdown. We provided some online learning for our children and many of the children and our very supportive parents um, did achieve well during the lockdown and managed to keep up with some of their learning. But obviously some of the children weren't able to do that. So we have got some big differences in in where the children are, are at. But uh, we we basically implemented our curriculum for the, for the year as, as quickly as possible after doing some initial assessments. So we're not going back and going over uh, old ground, if you like. We're, we're, we're cracking on with the new curriculum, and we think the children will catch up very quickly. Um, uh, we've got an Ofsted. We're due Ofsted this term. So we're looking at that being delayed, obviously, but we're working towards that. So we've done some fantastic work on our curriculum. So we're looking at implementing that new curriculum uh, and just getting back to those high standards that we used to. And um, so, you know, in some ways, quite an exciting time. But I think we've got the the opportunity to, to get back on track quite quickly uh, and carry on being successful in the future. And I certainly wish um, all of the success in the world for the uh, the school, especially over the course of Thank the next you. few months as you continue to adjust to this, Craig. And actually, just given how enlightening it's been having you come on to discuss this today, I think it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next few months and invite you back onto the show just to see how things are getting on, not just at the school, but also we can reassess just how far we've come in the time between as well. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be a pleasure. I'd like to do that. I'd really welcome that opportunity as well, Craig. I really enjoyed having you joining us today. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully speak again, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Okay. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank you, Craig, for your time as well. Thank you. I would also reiterate that message to all of those tuning into the uh, the programme today. Do please take care and stay safe yourselves. Consider yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking on today's programme, of course, to Craig Richardson, head teacher at Helsby Hillside Primary School in Cheshire. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he took up the post of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for mental health causes. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um mm source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role you know and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on the sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Wearing red. So it w- what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.